listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How how then is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? The word of the Lord. Take a seat. After Suzanne, Suzanne, after you read like that, we're ready for the feast of Scripture. That was, woo, okay. Well, church, I uh, welcome all of you who don't have a lake house. It's so good to see you. (laughs) Joke is an oldie but a (laughs) goodie. It is great to be together today. I have been in, I was in Lebanon. Um, I don't know, time has flown in the last couple of weeks. I feel like I've not seen you in months, and I just missed uh, last Sunday uh, really, really great to be together. I think it's appropriate for me coming back uh, that today's the day of Pentecost, where we're remembering uh, how the Holy Spirit fell on the church and the, the message of the gospel went to all of the nations. Pentecost was originally, uh, had an ancient history in ancient Judaism. It's remembered first as being the, the beginning of the, the harvest and also celebrates how God gave the, uh, the Ten Commandments, the commandments to the people of Israel. In the Christian imagination, with the descent of the Spirit, this whole thing has been reimagined. Uh, Pope Leo the Great said about the, the Pentecost dual meanings. He said, To the Hebrew people, now freed from Egypt, the law was given on Mount Sinai 50 days after the sacrifice of the Paschal Lamb, the Passover Lamb. Similarly, after the Passion of Christ, in which the true Lamb of God was killed, Just 50 days after his resurrection, the Holy Spirit fell upon the apostles and on the whole group of believers. Whereas in the Old Covenant, Pentecost remembers how the law was written on stone. In the New Covenant, we remember how the law was written on people's hearts. 
And as we read this account in Acts, the disciples have gathered at Jesus' instruction, waiting in this upper room in Jerusalem. And Jesus had told them at his ascension, Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the giving of the Holy Spirit was associated, of course, with, with the launch of the church, the birth of the, the church as a new people in continuity with the people of old. But it also represents the beginning of Christian mission, that impetus within the heart of a person who knows Jesus to share what has happened, what's happened in his death and resurrection. He said, you'll be my witnesses about what happened going out in concentric circles from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria into the ends of the earth. And there's a really rich and at times troubled story of Christian mission over the last 2,000 years, but mostly valiant of people at great risk at times to themselves sharing the good news of the resurrection with people who had never heard the Gospels. And this is integral to the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit shows up in power in order to enable people to give witness to the resurrection of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is, is a, a person of the Trinity with whom many of us have an active and vibrant relationship. And there are also some people who, if they were honest, would admit that they're a little bit uncomfortable with the Holy Spirit. Uh, my buddy Matt Judkins wrote a blog article once called, The Holy Spirit is Not Your Weird Uncle. <laughs> the Holy Spirit can, can uh, associate some interesting personalities. Some people who love Jesus... But, like, if they're going to pick their favorite member of the Trinity, it's the Holy Spirit, sometimes end up being a little bit on the kooky side. And I'm not going to say which intersections in the city of Tulsa, but there are intersections in the city of Tulsa where these interactions with people behaving a little strangely tied to the Holy Spirit seem to emanate. You may have been on the receiving end at times of people saying, the Holy Spirit told me to say this to you. And you're like, well, he sure didn't tell me. That was a little bit offbeat. I went to ORU until I could make this joke. Lots and lots, of <laughs> lots and lots of women had the experience of men coming to them on campus and saying, the Holy Spirit told me that you were supposed to be my wife. And I found that a nine times out of ten, the Holy Spirit did not tell the woman that. So whereas there, there are people who have kind of a kooky relationship with the Spirit, it is scandalous for all of us to deny the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And J.I. Packer, the late great Anglican theologian, wrote about this. He said, in God's great scheme of salvation, the day of Pentecost was an epoch-making event, as was the incarnation of the Son of God, which we celebrate at Christmas. And his sin-bearing death and resurrection, which we celebrate every Holy Week and Easter. Each of these was an event that changed the world by reason of the new reality that it added. And yet Pentecost does not catch the imagination or call forth the major commemorative action of God's people in the way that Christmas and Easter do. Christmas in the city of Tulsa, really big deal. Easter in the city of Tulsa, really big deal. This Sunday in the city of Tulsa, Memorial Day weekend sale at JCPenney's <laughs> or wherever. Why is that? Why is Pentecost, why does it not get equal attention to Christmas and Easter? Well, why? Because generally speaking, the ministry of the Holy Spirit does not bulk large in either our thinking or our living, and that is something that urgently needs to change. 
Pascal says, not Pascal, Packer says that in the absence of a vibrant life with the Holy Spirit, the church tends toward four unhealthy things. One of those is institutionalism. We care a whole lot about our buildings. We care a lot about our services. The church tends toward formalism, which is like you should be buttoned up looking good. Your behavior is really important. Your attendance is really important at worship services. Attendance, not a word that shows up a lot in the New Testament. The third thing that the Spirit, that in the absence of the Spirit, the church tends toward is moralism, which is just be good. And then finally, traditionalism. This is the way we've always done it. This is the place where we feel comfortable and we're good here. And though each of these dynamics offers an insight of some kind of value, on the whole, they're like what Paul described, that some people have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. We do not want to be the people who are sidestepping the gospel and marginalizing the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I understand why some people are reluctant. But just as it would be heresy to deny the Father, and just as it would be heresy to deny the Son, it is heresy, it is anathema, it is the thing we must not do to deny the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, it's for your good that I go away, that the Spirit might come. We mustn't pick one member of the Trinity that we like above the others. Our life with God is always Trinitarian. We always come to the Father through the Son, by the Holy Spirit, there is no other way. But what I want to submit today to you today as we're exploring Acts chapter 2 is that when the Spirit fell on Pentecost, the Spirit was answering the words of the prophet that the law would be written on our heart. And Jesus said, the law and the prophets are fulfilled in the two greatest commandments, that we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, and that we would love our neighbors as ourselves. And what I want to say to you is that in giving the Spirit, the Lord's intention is that the Word written on our hearts would be realized in our lives. And that you and I, with all of our our warts, all of our calluses, with the defects in our personalities, would become like Jesus in this world. The Catechism asks, what does God want to accomplish in my life in Christ? God wants to liberate me from sin, not form, liberate me from sin and transform me into the image of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. What I want to speak to today is how the former, loving God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, speaks into the latter, loving our neighbors as ourselves. And it's the whole neighbor part that really gripped my attention in this reading of Acts chapter 2. I've read this passage a lot. I grew up in a, in a tradition that really loved Acts chapter 2 and was very open to the work of the Holy Spirit, which I'm grateful for. But there's a part here in verses 7 through 11 that struck me as if I'd never read it before. It says, Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all of these who've been filled with the Holy Spirit speaking in other languages? Aren't all of these people Galileans from around the area of the Lake of Galilee? Well, then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, etc., etc., the ones that none of us can pronounce correctly, visitors from Rome, Jews, and converts to Judaism, Cretans, and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Now, as I, as I read this this week, I printed out a blank map of the Mediterranean, and I was just trying to map where each of these people likely resided. 
And so I pulled out the map. Those of you at the back may not be able to see it super well, but at the very center, represented by fire, you've got Jerusalem where the Spirit descended and a tongue of, of fire rested on each of them. And if you were to just draw arrows moving outward in every direction, it's what's represented by the nations here in Acts chapter 2. And because of the developments of roads in the Roman world, and because of the festival that they were here for the festival of Pentecost, Jews from around the known world at this time were present in Jerusalem. And so if you were able to get up close to the map, you'd see that we have people from as far west as Italy and Greece. You've got folks all over what is now modern-day Turkey, folks in Syria, in Iraq, in Iran, all over North Africa, including Egypt and Libya. And so when the Holy Spirit descends, the disciples start spontaneously speaking in the language of the people represented by uh, the map here. And this was not just some kind of individual prayer language that, so that they could individually communicate with God. It was actually intelligent speech. And what immediately follows, Peter gets up on this day of Pentecost and he explains to them what has happened, that the Spirit has fallen in, in response to the promises of all that God did through Jesus, who is Israel's Messiah. And we don't know the specific contents of what they were saying, but I think Peter's message on Pentecost is a pretty good guess of what happened. These people from all over the region are hearing the proclamation of how God has fulfilled His promises to Israel and sent the Messiah, and they're hearing it in their own language. And as a result, we have as close as could be in the ancient world to, to what we now call like a viral moment, that all of these people who were temporarily gathered in Jerusalem, who will soon scatter to their own homes, have heard the gospel and they're going to take with them the news of what they'd seen and what they'd heard. Uh, Rich and Joey and I over here were in Lebanon together, and um, it was really amazing being in a foreign country. I know how to say like three things in Arabic. The most helpful, when hamam, where's the bathroom? I used that one a, a couple of times. Um, we were, it, was, it was comforting when we went to visit the school of Syrian refugees. We were in a middle school to see that all of these kids, many of these kids who hadn't been in classes in three or four years because of their unique situation as refugees, are now in their first year as middle schoolers uh, in this Christian school, were speaking English, almost fully conversant at the end of just one year of English instruction. And it was really comforting and surprising being away from home, not expecting people to speak like me in English, uh, or Oklahoma English at least, that uh, to hear the language of home, all these kids from Syria speaking English, and it was really comforting. And on Pentecost, all these people are far from home, and they end up in Jerusalem, and they similarly hear the language of home, which had to have been surprising and comforting. And this is deliberately in our imagination meant to call our mind back to Genesis chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel. And the day of Pentecost is like a reverse Babel moment. At Babel in Genesis 11, the people wanted to stay in one place. They wanted to speak one language and make themselves, make a name for themselves, make gods of themselves. But God's intention for creation, beginning on chapter 1 of the Bible, page 1 of the Bible, was that creation, humanity, would fill the earth and subdue it. That every corner of the world would be subdued by the, the humans who are ruling over creation as God rules over them. 
God wanted the muchness, the diversity for, a, for teeming of life, but the people wanted to hoard and concentrate. And here the people are concentrated in one place. Instead of hearing everything in one language, they hear the, the good news about Jesus using the language of home, and there they're scattered to take the good news back home with them. They've heard the good news about Jesus in their own diverse languages, and this begins the fulfillment of the promises that God made to Abraham at the very beginning of this whole rescue project. In Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I'll show you, and I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you, and all peoples, all ethnicities, all families of the earth are going to be blessed through you. Something that a lot of believers miss is that from the very, very beginning, God's heart was for all of the nations of the earth. That through one nation, He was going to bless all of the nations of the earth. What happened at Pentecost was also a foretaste of what would happen in the age to come when all the nations gather around the throne of God. This is Revelation 21. John sees this vision and he says, In this vision of a new Jerusalem that has come out of heaven, and heaven and earth are joined together. He said, In this new Jerusalem I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light. And the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. I think we, capt we capture moments of the glory that will be in the age to come, like in the, in the Olympic Games, like when all of those nations, there's the parade of nations, and we see all of the diversity of these people. I also think, funny enough, of the original Lion King, the, very, the opening scene when they're gathering around Pride Rock to meet, you know, the new king, baby Simba, and you see the diversity of the animal life and all these people making, all these creatures making their sounds and braying and neighing and kneeling before the king. It says the, the nations, the kings of the earth will bring their splendor before the throne and before the Lamb. On no day will the gates of the new Jerusalem ever be shut, for there will be no night there, no periods of vulnerability or risk. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. This reminds us that God's intention from the beginning was to create a new family in Christ from all the nations of the world. But what happens in our world is that when we look at a map like this, if you were to look at this map up close, and you think about it through one of the primary lens that each of us experience the world as Americans, thinking about it through national lens, when we look at a map like this, what many of us see are enemies, national enemies. I'll never forget the first time I went to Lebanon, I went as a guest of World Vision, and we're in refugee camps, we're learning about the Syrian refugee crisis. This is one of the greatest humanitarian crises of our lifetimes. And I remember at a dinner with the president of World Vision, he said, and we can't get the American church to do anything about it. The American church is utterly disinterested in showing mercy to Syrian refugees. They said what Syria needs more than anything is an earthquake. Because folks will give to a natural disaster, but a civil war, even though women and children and many vulnerable people are suffering, Americans are indifferent. 
And I felt convicted at that dinner. I organized a group of pastors. We went to Lebanon, a country the size of Rhode Island, four million people and two million refugees come into it. Millions of people, largely women and children, living in unsafe, vulnerable conditions, not legally allowed to be in the country, not allowed to put their children in schools. What are they going to do? This is a population that is vulnerable to be exploited. It's also a population that could very easily be um, leveraged to the extremes, and they're going to listen to whoever feeds them. So I organized this, you know, refugee response weekend in Tulsa, and I was surprised, but I perhaps shouldn't have been, when the, the phone call came to my office of this woman who'd been a longtime member of the church, and with cable news blaring in the background, she said, I don't understand why we're doing this stuff for those enemies of ours. I was like, well, these, what? She's like, like, didn't Jesus say that, like, we should love everybody? Well, yes. Well, aren't, you know, Muslims everybody? Well, yes, but they're our enemies and we shouldn't help them. And we do this whole circular conversation again and again and again, and this prejudice in her heart is immovable. They're the enemies. Didn't Jesus die for everyone? Don't Muslims, don't Syrians count as part of everyone? Yes, but shouldn't we help? No, because they're the enemy. They're those people. I remember uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was with our, our bishop, Todd Hunter, at a gathering, and he shared about when he was 17 or 18 years old, um, his brother had been killed in the war in Vietnam. And this is before Todd had come to know Jesus, and, and, and learning the news about his brother, he developed this real deep enmity and hatred of people from that country. And one of the first signs that the Spirit was making his home in Todd's life was when he came to put his faith in Jesus that he began to let go of that hatred and against that prejudice, let go of that hatred. And I have to think as I was looking at this map that surely the first believers, seeing the people from all of these different countries, they, they would have had within themselves their own hurdle to overcome when they saw the nations responding for ethnic Jews, the ancient Israelites, this map is full of enemies. The Elamites are among some of their earliest neighboring enemies. You go to Egypt, we were slaves for 400 years, and the Lord led us out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. They look at what was, was ancient Syria, and you're like, yeah, they're the ones that destroyed the northern tribes of Israel and exiled them. They look at what was then Babylon, say, those, those are the people who destroyed the temple, who set the city ablaze. Every one of those nations were people with whom they had warred in the past and with whom they had enmity. And now all of these people, all of these nations that they previously disdained were believing the good news about Jesus. On the other side of the death and the resurrection of Jesus is God now pulled back the veil on his intentions from the very beginning that God was not just trying to rescue one ethnic group of people, but through this one nation to save all of the nations of the world, the church began to wake up to the reality of God's intentions. They began to have this insight that was captured by the Apostle Paul. He said this in 2 Corinthians 5. He said, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, 
Because one died for all, we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. Or we might say it like this, because Jesus died for everyone, I can't look at anyone the same. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. John the evangelist in his first letter, man, this one's hard. He said, whoever claims to love God and yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have, not, who they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. If my grandma were alive, uh, she would say, this is the part of the sermon where I begin meddling. <laughs> and I hope to make you slightly uncomfortable. I want to ask you to consider, is there a person or is there a group of people that you find very difficult to love? Or I'll put it this way, is there a person or a group of people that you find really easy to dislike and to hate? Is there a group of people or persons that you intuitively think of as being less than or beneath you? Now, you wouldn't tell people this. If I asked you this, you'd say, no, just like I would. But in the, the most honest part of your heart, and just like your subconscious as you're thinking about this person, that group of people, do you have disdain for anyone? If you were really honest with yourself, is there a person or a group of persons that you delight in seeing suffer? Or you'd actually be really glad to see some good withheld from them? I'm going to give you a quote from Dallas Willard in just a second that's going to illustrate this, but I want, I want you to think now, is there a person or a group of people who you would have just a really difficult time praying for? Or if God was like, hey, John, should I pour out all of the blessings of heaven on them? And you'd be like, you got anybody else? Like Jonah, he doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he knows that God is going to show mercy to the Ninevites, and he preaches, and they repent, and he's like, I didn't want you to be nice to them. I've been reading Dallas Willard's Knowing Christ Today, which is challenging me in so many ways and blowing my mind. And, and Willard says, reflect on what goes on within you upon your first sighting of another person. It may be a member of your family or someone at your job. It may be as you approach your meeting place, your church. Is your first thought that they should be blessed by God in every way? Are you prepared to serve them spiritually by lifting them to God in prayer for His utmost gifts to them and by assisting them in their needs? Or do we meet others in the spirit of the Pharisee who pompously prayed alongside the tax collector, I thank you, God, that I am not like him. Love of enemies. How we treat those people with whom we disagree those people that we dislike. How we treat those people is one of, and its redemption is one of the first signs that God's Spirit has taken up residence in a believer. As Paul said, because we believe that one died for all, we can no longer look at anyone else from a worldly point of view. Because Christ died for everyone, we can't see anyone the same. 
Willard, in describing our relationship as believers with the Holy Spirit, distinguishes between those who have knowledge by description versus those who have knowledge by experience. You, you might describe your life in the Holy Spirit in terms of knowledge by description. It's like, I get the theory about what the Bible says or what believers say the Holy Spirit does in the life of the believer, but I've really never experienced that firsthand. Versus the one who knows knowledge by experience, I have called out to the Lord to search my heart, to point out those areas of prejudice and hatred and racism within me. All of these things which have no bearing, no, like they don't belong even a little bit in the life of a believer. And you would know by experience the Lord Jesus can change hearts. With regard to this aspect of the Holy Spirit, God transforming the way we relate to people we dislike, people we hate, people we regard as enemies, many of us have knowledge by description. We know the theory, but we need to have the knowledge by experience of actually inviting and welcoming the Holy Spirit to transform our hearts so that we may no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. And the thing that keeps us from doing it is sin. Willard said the anti-God, anti-wisdom, anti-human drive that Scripture calls sin is hydra-headed and formidably tangled in its expression. Devious and deceptive to the last degree, sin, acting like a satanic second self, keeps finding new ways of expressing itself. So how do we combat this tendency that's inside of each of us? He says a basic move in the war with sin must be to pray repeatedly, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In Psalm 19, it's the one that begins, the heavens declare the glory of God. Eight or nine verses in, it makes this hard shift describing the law of the Lord, how it's perfect, how it refreshes the soul. And David ends this meditation on nature and on God's specific revelation in Scripture and says, who can discern their own errors? And this is right on. That these, we have blind spots, ways in which we feel like we're justified in our actions. The Scripture says, who can know, know their own errors, which is why we ought to pray regularly, Lord, search me and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And this is precisely what we ought to do, what is so right to do when we come to the table. We practice the natural behavior that the gospel teaches us of, of exhaling and surrendering our sin, of repenting, of inviting the Holy Spirit to point out those areas of our hearts where we're misaligned with God's ideals for us. And also to put our faith in Jesus, that Jesus alone is the one of, capable of transforming us into the kind of people who no longer see anyone quite the same because Christ died for everyone. And this is what I would invite you into today as you come to the table. The Scriptures instruct us when we receive Holy Communion, when we remember that Christ died for me, we also remember Christ died for the world, and we invite the Holy Spirit of God to point out the ways in which our love for God has not yet reached its full expression in our love for our neighbors. We say, Holy Spirit, would you point out in me, would you bring to my mind the face of that person with that group of people, and would you liberate me to stop hating and begin the path of learning to love them? Let's pray together.
We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.